We hear it everywhere. Trust in police has eroded, reaching historic low points. Yet we know that if police want to make communities safe and livable, nothing is more important than trust. How can police build trust with the public, especially in a time when race and police conduct is at the forefront? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system and still somehow, somewhere, enjoying that wonderful day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. As we look around our country since the murder of George Floyd at the end of May 2020, we see great dissatisfaction with police. Sometimes dissatisfaction is just too timid a word. There have been demonstrations everywhere in the United States in which thousands and thousands of people have marched, demanding better policing, changes in policing, sometimes even demanding no policing. Seeing what happened to George Floyd, because we all could see it, and connecting it with so many other deaths at the hands of police has led to an historic crisis for policing in the United States. It isn't just the demands or the handling of demonstrations, which has sometimes been poor. It is that the most important thing police depend on is being lost. As vital as they are, funding and resources, good training and equipment and other tangibles are not the most important thing that police rely on. It is something less tangible but more fundamental. It is the trust of the public. Without public trust, police have no assurance of the acceptance of the results of their work. No assurance that the public will follow their directives or even follow the law generally. Without trust, police lose their very legitimacy as a public institution. A nationwide Gallup poll in August of 2020 found that, for the first time in the history of regular polling on this question, less than half of all American adults were willing to say that they had confidence in their police. Even more stunning was the difference in confidence broken out by race. 56% of white adults said they had confidence in police, still a very low number historically, but only 19% of black adults said so, a gap of 37%. So police have to be thinking about trust all the time. All the time? Really? Yes. Here's a brief snippet of audio from Mike Davis, Director of Public Safety at Northeastern University. This recording comes from the National Institute of Justice. Every single encounter is an opportunity to build trust. Even if you're making an arrest, even if you're dealing with someone in their worst possible day, that's an exceptional opportunity. So how is trust built and maintained between police and those they serve? In a difficult time like this, with people distrusting police, what can be done to rebuild that trust? Our guest, an expert in policing and connecting communities, and a long-serving and now high-ranking leader, has the insights we need. 
Tarek McGuire became deputy chief of police in Arlington, Texas, in their police department in 2018. Arlington is a city of almost 400,000 between Dallas and Fort Worth, and that department is where Deputy Chief McGuire began his law enforcement career in 2003. Deputy Chief McGuire is at the forefront of a new generation of high-ranking police officers and is best known for creating innovative strategies and programs for the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the IACP, and the U.S. Department of Justice, focusing on community police relations through training, the development of trust, and evidence-based practices. He's a frequent speaker, trainer, and commentator in not just police departments throughout the nation and the world, but in universities and law schools. In 2018, the International Association of Chiefs of Police recognized him as one of the 40 under 40 most progressive police leaders in the world. He's the winner of numerous awards and accolades, and he's the subject of a great interview piece in the fall 2020 issue of Translational Criminology. We've got a link to this remarkable jargon-free piece up on our website. Deputy Chief Tarek McGuire, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thanks for being with me. David, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to speak. Uh, and not only just speak, but just have dialogue with you on a lot of issues that we're facing in policing. But I will also like to also thank you for just your um, body of work and your contributions to the criminal justice field as we all try to seek to increase uh, just the standard of life for citizens across the United States as it relates to criminal justice and safety. So thank you for having me. I really thank you for that, sir. I really do indeed. So. You you come up and you join the Arlington Police Department um, 17 or more years back. You're thinking about policing. Um, you've now ascended to a fairly high rank. But what drew you to policing in the first place? What was your motivation? How were you thinking about that? Well, David, I will tell you, I grew up in the urban area of Dallas in a section of Dallas called Oak Cliff. Uh, and, and, you know, growing up in that environment, uh, there were a lot of positive role models. Um, and not only were there positive role models, but there were avenues for us to uh, be successful in life. And so in my particular neighborhood, there were a lot of student athletes. And what I mean by that, there were a lot of high school collegiate uh, successful athletes that had played professionally in professional sports that grew up in my particular community. Uh, but there were also uh, different scholars uh, that were that were probably under-recognized as role models in my community. Uh, but I will share with you that after graduating high school, uh, I went to Oklahoma State University, uh, played college football at Oklahoma State University, but I always had a mindset that if I did not play in the NFL, that I would go into policing. And so they came through influence. Uh, there were two police officers uh, in my church that I observed all the time during the week, growing up in Texas, growing up in the Bible Belt. Uh, my parents kept me in church constantly. And so while in church, these two men uh, that worked for the Dallas Police Department were always present. They were in their uniforms at church. And ultimately, uh, after graduating college, they mentored me and continued to mentor me, allowing me to go on police ride outs. And so I knew I, if I did not play professional football, uh, that I wanted to serve my community. And so years later, through that influence and wanting to make a difference, 
Uh, here I am now, 17 years later, approaching my 18th year at the Arlington Police Department. So you had very, very influential and positive role models. You know, we hear so much today about how hard it is for police departments to recruit generally, and nothing seems to be harder than recruitment of African-American people uh, because they don't feel it's a positive path for them. Was that ever a question for you or did those positive role models really help you overcome that or how did it play out? Absolutely. I, I don't want to underscore the dangers of policing, right? Uh, this is a dangerous job. Uh, at times, police officers are able to, to be a positive influence in the community, whether a person is in a good, negative, a good or negative situation. But then there are also times uh, that police officers have to encounter dangerous situations. And so I will tell you, David, growing up in an urban environment, uh, it was not uh, absent to hear gunshots in my community uh, at night. It was also not absent to, to wake up in the middle of the night and see lights flashing in my neighborhood at different residences and to look out the window and wonder, you know, what was going on. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I think there is a dichotomy as it relates to policing in communities of color, particularly African-American communities. Uh, there are many African-Americans, including myself, that at times have had negative experiences with law enforcement. And those negative experiences does not always equate uh, to police use of force, but some of those negative experiences equate to uh, historical lens and historical factors that we know are present in law enforcement. And so I'll give you a brief example. Uh, you know, growing up, my father had a, he had a white Trans Am, right? With, with racing Trans Am. My dad had a, he had a white Trans Am with racing tires on it and T-tops. And, and often we would be stopped, right? Uh, because uh, police sometimes associated that vehicle with a, with a racing car, right? And so my dad grew up in the 50s and the 60s. And so his uh, environment growing up and shaping his experiences through the civil rights movement were very pivotal in times in, in how he raised me and instructed me as a young man. And so when you talk about generational fear of the police, my father would always tell me, you know, uh, Tark, you don't look at the police when they pull up on the side of you in the car. You know, when you walk into a store, you don't put your hands in your pockets because uh, some people may perceive you to be stealing, right? That's going to call police. And, and when you look at how that transcends today, law enforcement officers are sometime in restaurants and they may be having a discipline issue with their child. And they turn to the police and say, uh, you know, do you want me to have him arrest you, right? And so over time, we as police, particularly in communities of color, have had to fight these ideologies that sometimes are still realities in certain communities, but overall, we have to fight them, right, to address what these generational concerns are that people experience historically uh, while growing up. And so I believe that, that it is absolutely true uh, that people in communities of color have a fear of the police and that fear transcends, I'm sorry, transcends into uh, wanting to become a police officer. Uh, so there are multiple police departments across the nation uh, that, that have a challenge with recruiting African-Americans. And I think there are some things that they can do better uh, as it relates to recruitment plans and recruitment strategies uh, to key in on African-Americans uh, that, that, that have a desire to serve in a law enforcement capacity. I think that, that it's important uh, that, that you have a recruitment strategy to connect 
with African-Americans and to also uh, have recruiters that look like them and share those same life experiences with them uh, because there are African-Americans that have a desire to serve the community and to be a part of change moving forward in the future. So it's key to have people involved in policing that look like the community in order to maintain uh, uh, the, the ability to recruit more people from the community, which is all a net benefit in terms of how people will see the police, how they will interact with them, how the police will interact with that community. You know, I, it, it brings me to thinking of uh, uh, um, a person I know, and I know you you know him too, Ron Davis. Ron has been a guest on the podcast here on Criminal Injustice. He's a longtime friend uh, of mine, and I know you, yours, yours too. And one thing that I have seen him uh, say to police audiences when he and I have been teaching together is how as a young person he was subject to some of these this kind of treatment uh, racial profiling uh, and uh, as an officer he was taught to do it engaged in it now as a leader it's up to him to end it and to grow through it and to help policing get through it does that ring a bell to you? Did you have the same set of experiences as a young person, then as a young uh, new officer, and now as a leader? Does that sound right? Well, I think that, that uh, number one, I, well, let me say this. I have a lot of respect for, for Ron Davis and the work that he's done. Oh, uh, yes. Even as, a, even as a police captain years ago on racial profiling and really introducing that into the national landscape. Uh, racial profiling, in my opinion, is something very real. And, and the reason why I say it's very real, police departments now have model policies as it relates to fact checking and auditing officers' behaviors as it relates to racial profiling. And so, and so there is an intersection uh, with racial profiling, also stereotypes and ensuring uh, that, that, that your biases as a person uh, does not cross the line and how we treat people with equity, equi I'm sorry, equality and fairness. And so I think those things are very important to point out uh, as you have these particular discussions. And, and do I think uh, that as a young man, I had negative experience with law enforcement? Absolutely. Uh, there were times that, you know, I've been pulled on the side of the road with family members for a traffic infraction. Uh, as a police officer, uh, early in my career, uh, where I thought that traffic stops took longer than they actually should. Uh, I think that when you talk about racial profiling, you have to be very specific because it is uh, stopping someone or, or you know, uh, retaining someone basic ba off the basis of their race. And so I think those things have to continue to be at the forefront of the conversation uh, because we know that there are approximately 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the United States, over 900,000 law enforcement officers, uh, state, federal, uh, and local and tribal. And so we know that officers are going to engage in misconduct. The question is, is do we have the framework and the training to address the deficiencies and also hold officers accountable in their daily tasks? That is well said. And I know that uh, you have thought a lot about the ways to connect with communities as a police officer and as a leader in a police agency. Let's talk about that. What is it that draws you to the idea of community policing? 
and to the idea of community police connection as a centerpiece of so much of what you do? Well, thank you for asking that question. You know, I've done a lot of research on community police relations over the years. And before we talked about the contextual framework of community policing, I think it's important to recognize Chief Lee Brown from years ago that architect neighborhood police and then later transition into community policing as we know it today. Quite right. I personally believe that there are four pillars as it relates to building a successful community and also strengthening community police relations. And those four pillars are the home, the educational institution, which really represents the school district. Uh, and then you have local businesses and community stakeholders. And those local business and community stakeholders can represent your religious institutions. Uh, that, that, that truly invest in the spirituality and consciousness of the community, uh, the police department, which is the, the face of government, uh, and ultimately the government itself. I think all, all of those entities have to work together on a continuous and ongoing basis to ensure uh, that you have an effective and safe community. Uh, one without the other, as we know, uh, will cause difficulty and discourse uh, because ultimately we all desire to have a safe and effective community. And so when you talk about community police relations for me, it exists as a philosophy. Uh, and and, and it, if, if those partners are not working together, uh, then ultimately we don't have public safety. When you talk about community police relations, uh, law enforcement does not have the sole responsibility to make communities safe now. When you talk about after school programs, uh, that, that invest in children, when you talk about librarians that invest in the literacy of children, when you talk about those that take the extra time out to ensure that the generational issues that I just previously spoke of are addressed, uh, then we can have safe communities. So we know that policing is a co-production, uh, which means that it takes multiple partners to be involved uh, in order for us to have a progressive society. This really makes me think of the translational criminology uh, article because you talk there about relentlessly focusing on building public trust. Tell me what you meant by that. Well, I think public trust is the only thing that we have, right, as it relates to police and community. That is the one single component that if you break public trust as it relates to police and community, then you are completely diminished as a legitimate organization. The task force on 21st century policing by design identified trust and legitimacy as the first pillar, as a key pillar for all police departments. Uh, we know that one incident of breaking that trust with any community, as we have solved recently, uh, can, can, re can result in national outrage. Not only national outrage, we know that uh, falsified public policy or lack of public policy can negate into unlawful police action that intersects uh, with, with lack of trust in the community. And so trust has to be not only spoken, it has to not only be visual through uh, body-worn camera and release and public policy, but trust has to be built fundamentally every single day uh, between law enforcement and community. And so I think that it is the most pivotal question uh, that we have and that we continue to face 
is what is public trust? Trust is something similar to any other relationship that, that we have in life. It's something that has to be worked on continuously. And when it is broken, when there is some type of public failure, we have to do everything that we possibly can to restore it. And there is a process to that. Talk about that process. What is the process of building or rebuilding public trust, especially in a climate like this? What is that process? You know, it's, it's, it's very difficult because as we transition to uh, what the community wants today, I think there is a greater involvement uh, as it relates to police oversight. I think there is a greater involvement that communities want uh, as community members in the role of government. And so police departments are being challenged. Uh, we're going to have to build a different path forward. Uh, it's going to be more than just talking and lip service. I think there are three things that are, that are very pivotal. And that first thing is the community has said uh, through protests and through demonstrations, they want to be seen, right? They want to know that their government, their police department sees them. And not only that they see them, but they also want to be heard, right? And so for them, in my uh, perspective, hearing them means that, that police departments and government need to follow with some type of action, right? They need to see some type of legislation. They need to see some type of changes uh, in public policy and procedures uh, for police departments. And then finally, uh, they want some type of accountability. And I think that accountability now is transcending uh, beyond just, uh, body-worn camera review, but that, that accountability uh, now transcends to the point of the co-production and the necessities of public safety, uh, not only as it relates to the police department, but also reducing violence and making their communities safer. And so when you talk about community policing and public trust, it extends beyond law enforcement. It is now going to take a true collective effort uh, followed up with action uh, and then some type of uh, reasonable outcome. Let's take a quick break. We're with Deputy Chief Tarek McGuire of the Arlington, Texas Police Department. We're talking about community police relations and the central importance of trust. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech-savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long-term 
contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/slash injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com slash injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E. That's simplysafe.com slash injustice. Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. And our guest on this episode is Deputy Chief Tarek McGuire of the Arlington, Texas Police Department. He's a leader in police community relations. And we have been discussing exactly that subject and the fundamental role of trust in policing and in public safety. So one of the things, uh, Deputy Chief uh, McGuire, that you said in the article that I have talked about is you've talked about, uh, I'll quote you here, co-developing training and teaching with a stakeholder group within a community most impacted by police activity. I think what you were talking about is having both the police and the community leaders work together to develop police training and then train police together. Yes, yeah, so I, I think it is very important as we move forward, we have to ask ourselves, what does the next 10 years of police community relations look like? And I know a lot of people say uh, police community relations, but I, I think it is important for us to say community police relations. And that reasoning is because I think that we are here to serve the community uh, and we are here to put the community needs first. And as a chief, one of the most uh, uh, consistent questions that I get all the time is how do we work together? How do we work through these issues together? And then how do we build trust in a police department and ensure uh, that uh, communities and police alike understand each other? You know, the most interesting thing, David, is over the last several years, we have saw uh, a lot of consensus uh, at the forefront talking about how police officers need to be better trained, right? How police officers need to better understand issues in the community. And so what better way for law enforcement to understand these issues uh, than for the community to come in and teach the police? And what I mean by that, I think it's important uh, that that starts in the field training process. It's important that, that cops are taught and trained to get out and talk to people, right? They're taught and trained to police the neighborhoods and understand the demographics, not only the demographics of the neighborhood, but just something as simple as, who do you go talk to in this neighborhood when you have a community problem? And then I think that transcends to, to special topics as it relates to hate crime, uh, issues as it relates to multiculturalism and diversity. Uh, what we do know is that at times we hire officers from all across the nation and sometimes across the world, and they're looking for a job because they have a desire to serve in particular communities. But at the same time, if you hire an officer from another demographic, that doesn't necessarily mean that they understand the culture of that community. And so who better to come in in the co-production of policing 
uh, to assist with training police officers in, uh, outside of the police department better than the community members. And so I think as we build a pathway forward, as we contend, continue to extend uh, what we've been previously discussing as community trust, the community wants to know their police department and they want to have a say-so in how their police officers are trained. So is there a police department that is doing what you're describing? Is, is it Arlington? Is it others that you have worked with? I think it's being done in, in different models uh, across the nation. Uh, I know that there are progressive organizations uh, that, that ensure during the field training process that officers are out in the community meeting community members uh, and understanding uh, what the issues are. I will tell you that the Arlington Police Department uh, has been a national leader as it relates to police hate crimes. Uh, and so it's important for us to document not only hate crimes, but hate incidents and better understand how these issues are affecting uh, certain demographics uh, in our communities. And so we have met with uh, civil rights groups. We've met with uh, community stakeholders on training. Uh, we have a training advisory committee that reviews our training. And so I think that that's just the start of the conversation, but we have to continue to advance uh, these narratives and these frameworks of training in the future, uh, because we have a different generation of police officers that are coming into the profession. And we also see a younger generation of activists uh, and people that are moving into communities that want to have a say-so in their police department. So you, you're the last one I would have to tell what a difficult time we are in uh, across many different issues, but the issue of police and communities, uh, particularly in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the relationship between police and those they serve has become very difficult in many, many places. And police are looking for ways to cope with this. They're looking for a direction. Um, for a better outcome. And in uh, that article in Translational Criminology, you talked about four things, and I'd like you to take a minute to uh, address each one of them. Your first point was establishing communication. Why don't you start there? You can move from there to transparency, priorities, and accountability. What, is, what, what are your thoughts about communication? David, I will tell you that communication has a direct relationship to building trust. And when you talk about the issue or the excessive police use of force and murder that some people have identified it as uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, that has caused a lot of discourse throughout the nation. Uh, I do not support it. I do not support the officer's actions and it has caused complete disarray. But I also want to say that Communication is very difficult. We as the police are used to going into communities and explaining our, our existence, explaining the tools that we use to do our job. But I think very seldom do we just sit down and we just listen. Sit down and listen and understand what people are dealing with every single day as it relates to crime, as it relates to poverty, as it relates to, to lack of education and other structures that are uh, adversely impacting uh, certain communities of color, especially uh, that live uh, at or below the poverty line. I think that it is important that we sit down and we listen to what people are dealing with. 
We sit down and we understand the history uh, that the institutional policing has caused in these particular communities and that we acknowledge today uh, the, the negligence of certain law enforcement officers uh, that, that cause uh, some type of diminished capacity to the profession. And when I talk about communication, I think it's important to note uh, that officers risk their lives every single day, but these are two separate conversations, right? Uh, this is about understanding what people are going through and how we meet their needs uh, as a law enforcement entity. And if you recall what I stated earlier that policing has expanded uh, beyond just law enforcement. And so as you sit down and listen to people in communities and you understand what their challenges are, I think it's also important that we co-produce public safety with other uh, city departments, uh, because some of these issues may not even be law enforcement issues, as you know, that police get dispatched to uh, on, a, on a continuous and ongoing basis. So we need to sit down and be able to have uncomfortable conversations like never before, uh, but we also need to be able to just take it, you know, uh, take it and listen. And, and it's gonna be uncomfortable, but ultimately I think we're gonna be better for, for having that type of established communication. How about transparency? What's your thought on that, transparency? Yeah, so transparency is something else that the task force on 21st century policing pointing out. I think transparency uh, is, is beyond just showing a body-worn camera. I think people want to know transparency in how the police work and what justifies police actions. In reference back to the 21st century uh, task force on policing, uh, one thing that the Obama administration, Department of Justice, COPS office under Ron Davis focused on uh, was the police data initiative. And that police data initiative produced public policy uh, practices on police departments to show citizens uh, what their police department can do and cannot do, right? It also built a pathway to be transparent uh, and to show them uh, in a different vein outside of just a body-worn camera, what justifies police use of force? What is the definition of a traffic stop? These are questions that we get asked repeatedly and all the time, and we need to make policies available, publicly accessible online uh, to police, I'm sorry, not to police departments, but to community members. Talk about establishing priorities as part of the recipe. So, you know, every, every community, every city has a governing body, and normally that's the mayor and council. And as those priorities are established and representative of other people, I think that the police department uh, priorities should be also representative of what the community wants. And so it's important uh, for, the, for those uh, items and areas to mirror each other. And, and, and so it, it kind of goes into the last point. I know you're gonna, you're gonna ask me about it. Forgive me if I skip forward, but how, how do you establish priorities uh, through accountability? Please go um, there. Right? Um, I think it's important as we move forward uh, to sit down at the beginning of the year, just as any other organization would set out to make goals that you sit down with your community and your community stakeholders and you make those goals and you say, what are we going to accomplish together uh, this year? Are we gonna work together to reduce crime? Okay, if we're gonna work together to reduce crime, then how do we increase accountability between the police department and the communities? 
We need to increase our community watch groups. We need to increase, increase uh, uh, our youth engagement efforts. And, and these are things that we can work on together from a collaborative standpoint that will be progressive to address some of the issues that we've highlighted and identified as it relates to community police relations. That is Tarek McGuire. He is deputy chief in Arlington, Texas, the Arlington, Texas Police Department, uh, down between Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, one of the nation's most insightful thinkers and practitioners on the improvement of police community relations. Uh, an interview article with Deputy Chief McGuire is in the fall 2020 issue of Translational Criminology. We've got a link to it up on our website. Check it out. Thank you so much, Chief, for being my guest here on Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David. Feel free to invite me back at any time. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Branch. And this story of a lawyer and judge behaving badly from the Louisville Courier-Journal and the ABA Journal News Online concerns former trial judge Robert Connolly of Greenup County, Kentucky. If you think of the office of judge, you may think of a closely related phrase, judicial temperament. The idea of a good judicial temperament is that a judge should, on the bench, not exhibit biases toward or against Anyone before the court should treat all with fairness and open-mindedness. Perhaps, above all, the judge should conduct him or herself with dignity and show patience to all who end up in court. That's a great description, especially that last part, of what former trial judge Conley didn't do. It seems that while presiding over the case of a criminal defendant whom he had sentenced to probation in December of 2019, Judge Conley learned that the defendant had another set of charges to face in Ohio in a county over the state line. Judge Conley told the defendant to go to Ohio, get matters there handled, and then return to Kentucky, at which time Judge Conley would put the man in a residential drug treatment program as part of his probation. The defendant went to Ohio as instructed. As a matter of fact, he walked, so determined was he not to violate Judge Connolly's instructions by, say, waiting around a few days for a ride. When the defendant was eventually released from jail in Ohio on bond, the bonding agency said that the defendant had to find a place to stay in Ohio for now. The defendant had nowhere to turn, so he sought help from a church, sleeping on its porch. He was there about two weeks when someone called the Kentucky Probation Office, which came to Ohio, arrested the defendant, and brought him back to face Judge Conley. Judge Conley was not at all pleased. When the defendant tried to explain to Judge Conley what happened, Conley would have none of it. He cut the defendant off and then, quote, loudly slammed his hand on the bench. 
and, quote, screamed at the defendant, quote, I don't give a damn about your Ohio stuff anymore because you don't give a damn about my stuff, close quote. With that, Judge Connolly revoked the defendant's probation and sentenced him to 10 years in jail instead. The case was appealed, it all became public, and on November 6, 2020, the appeals court publicly rebuked Judge Connolly, saying he had acted, quote, peremptorily, profanely, and dyspeptically, and ordered him to resentence the defendant conducting himself, quote, in a manner that comports with the rules governing proper judicial conduct as to language, demeanor, and the dignity of the tribunal, close quote. And, oh yeah, Judge Connolly will be obligated to give a proper legal basis for the sentence, too, this time. Your correspondent understands how anyone, even a judge, can lose his or her temper once or twice. After all, judges are human beings. So, how intriguing to find out that this has happened before. Judge Connolly was reprimanded just last September by the state's Judicial Conduct Commission for a courtroom outburst in another entirely unrelated case. And you should know that when a judge's temperament has surfaced publicly multiple times, leading to some kind of reversal or discipline, well, these are usually not the only episodes out there. They are just the only ones we have heard about. One can bet that there are more in which no one filed a complaint or an appeal. So that's why I keep saying former trial Judge Connolly, right? He's gone. He must be out of office. No more to inflict his temper on those before him. Right? Well, yes. No more trial Judge Conley because instead, Judge Conley has just been elected to the Kentucky Supreme Court. That's right, he'll be part of the court that presides over the judicial system of the entire state, making final decisions in all manner of cases, including the discipline of lawyers and judges behaving badly. What could be better? That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly Judicial Division, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, why don't you call in and ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. That's 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. 
Also give us some contact information, but we won't share that. You can also write out your question on our Ask Dave tab on the website. Remember, we are listener supported. If you like what you hear and want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. We really do appreciate those of you who have done this. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. <laughs>